Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers, and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, Hello. and welcome to the Hobcast, show number 74, and I say that with some surety. (laughs) For a change. (laughs) For once. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we have created Hobeck Books. Hobeck Books, been running for two years, publishing the following genres. Crime. Thrillers. Mystery. And suspense. suspense. <laughs> That's what you're waiting for me to say. Though. No, That's no, a different way to do it. No, no, I was just trying to build the suspense. <laughs> you're very welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. What does the show do? Well, we talk about books. No surprise there. We also talk about running a business, uh, which is sometimes a surprise. Uh, and we have a great interview coming up with Nick Quantrill, who is an experienced crime author and the creator, co-founder of Hull Noir. So we spoke to him from his home in Hull. Hull. <laughs> and uh, it was it was a brilliant interview because we, we just covered so many, you know, guess what, folks? We ranged off on all sorts of topics, but it was really, really no, terrific. we didn't, did we? Yeah, I thought we'd try and sort of jazz it up a bit and do something different. And I have to say, it's one of my favourite Rebecca's Random Questions this week. And he he did a brilliant job of it. But If I'm allowed to say it, that was a bitch of a question. It was not. It was a fantastic question. It covers philosophy, it covers existentialism, emotion, all sorts of things. Blimey, it's Jean-Paul Sartre asking the random question. (laughs) Simone de Boulevard, actually. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay. Is that her name? Beauvoir? I don't know. Not Boulevard? Uh, probably not. <laughs> Just stick to Sartre, okay? Um, well, welcome to the show, and uh, we've got a lot to cover, so we'll speak to Nick uh, a little bit later. But in terms of news, which is the way we always start this podcast, uh, usually quite organised, but this week um, we have to... First of all, I think we can't pass um, or start without mentioning the knighthood of Sir Ian Rankin, former guest of ours from last year's Harrogate. Congratulations, Sir Ian. And uh, I think notable that his citation for his knighthood mentioned not just his work in terms of his uh, contribution to literature, but also his charity work. Charity. (laughs) His charity work. Uh, Look, he does an awful lot of of charity work. Um, And uh, so it was richly deserved and a long time coming. Do you know what? He's the first nearly knight I've ever met. Ever met. Is that right? Because he wasn't a knight, so he was a nearly knight when we met him. Yeah. No, I've worked with a knight or two. <laughs> um, well, I mean, the one that stands out for me is I worked with Sir Matthew Pinson. I don't know who that is. Okay, Sir Matthew Pinson was the partner for Steve Redgrave for, I think, is it three or maybe, oh, it was four. Four of the gold medals. Oh, he's a rowing boat man. Yeah, absolutely. And um, after he retired, he became a um, something of a sports presenter. And as part of his apprenticeship was that he had to work with me. 
uh, on the <laughs> on the sports side. Punishment or apprenticeship? Well, BBC News Channel had sort of sports bits, so he had to learn how to present in a studio and read auto cue and all that stuff. And he worked with me; he was absolutely charming to work with. Um, I never felt, you know, he wore his knighthood lightly. I would say, and his enormous success as an athlete. So, did you have to call him sir? Um, we used to sometimes take the mickey, yeah, go, um, uh, I, I would sometimes approach him and sort of bend on one knee and sort of, sir, uh, we have a bulletin to do or something <laughs> like that. Or, um, yeah, some people used to sh- call out, so Matt, can you come and have a look at this? And he goes, please just call me Matt. And it was like, <laughs> you know, he, he was, he was cool. Um, and then there's Sir Bradley Wiggins. Uh, I don't know who that is either. First British winner of the Tour de France, uh, multi-Olympic gold medalist at cycling. Oh, he's a runner. Cyclist, I mean. <laughs> I can't believe I've just... What sport did cyclist Bradley Wiggins party participate in? <laughs> and you've said runner. Brilliant, brilliant. This is genius, uh, as usual. We're... <laughs> Um, my my dear sister Rachel, we went. To, I went to see her on the way back from uh, an event this week, and um, she said your podcast is wonderfully folksy, and we are proving it in spades. I don't know what that word means, though. Folksy it makes uh, me think of tents and beads. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and acoustic music. No, it's or Morris dancing. No, it's not that. Uh, you know, it means that we are unashamedly ourselves. And it's kind of cute. But I wouldn't know how else to be, so... No, exactly. We could put on... Well, I think possibly if you go back to episode one uh, out of the 74, you'll probably hear us trying to be a little bit more professional. Speak for yourself. I didn't... I was nervous as... I know you were. You were nervous like a... (laughs) Like a kitten on a on a bed of hot coals, but I mean you, yeah, I mean, but you, you know, you've that emerged, famous simile. Now you've emerged into this wonderfully professional and slick person. Oh, he's so cute, isn't he? Yeah, there we go. Uh, well, there were other uh, awards um, for people in the publishing industry, but seeing Rankin really catches the eye. Uh, there was uh, a further, well, actually, there was a, a CBE, I think, for James Daunt. Oh, the Waterstones man. Waterstones man and owner of the Daunt Bookshops as well, and also the CEO of Barnes & Noble. I'd like a CBE one day. Yeah, uh, Joanne Harris also uh, won an award. I'm just checking. She follows us on TikTok. Does she? Yes. Good heavens, really? Yes, she does. I told you this the other day and you you were quite underwhelmed. Maybe you weren't quite listening, but yes, she does. Yeah, what she done recently that's actually been successful? I mean, Chocolat was massive. But... It was two. There were two books, weren't there? There was yeah. that. I can't remember. A the narrow other one. door, apparently. Mm, is no, one. that's not the one I'm thinking. Oh, of. Well, that's what they're quoting in uh, the bookseller. Uh, she got an OBE, and Salmon Rushdie got added another thing to his. He's already a sir, so he's got something extra. And Quentin Blake became a companion of honor. So uh, yeah, he's he's wonderful. Um, Contributed to many of our uh, childhoods. Can I ask a thick person's question? Mm. I thought these came out on New Year's Day. It's June. Yeah, there's the. There are two sets of honours. There's the New Year's honours, and then there's Queen's birthday honours. I didn't know that. Okay. Right. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And very occasionally, especially around sporting achievements, they will announce uh, an honour mid-year. You know, sort of. Rather than around the main times. Uh, a spontaneous honour. Yeah, that, like for instance, when the England cricket team finally won an Ashes in 2005, uh, it was immediately announced they're all getting MBEs. 
Oh, okay, that's quite sweet. Yeah. Does the Queen decide these things then? Well, it's it's the recommendation of the government. In fact, the government then takes recommendations from uh, most of the bodies that you can imagine. So the Labour Party will nominate some some honours. Um, and then there's, you know, if you're, uh, you know, made a contribution to a big charity, you might be nominated by them or something like that. I mean, if you're a lesser mortal, like uh, my mother got the you know she was very heavily involved in save the children fund and raised probably getting on for a million quid on um you know house to house collections for the save the children uh over the years in cambridge and uh her honor she didn't get sort of a gong she got invited to a garden party that's cute yeah she, so oh, she's met a, the queen no the queen i think she got prince edward um, but she did meet the Duke of Edinburgh a couple of times, and obviously Princess Anne is the president of the Save Children Fund, so she met her a few times. So she's had plenty of um, of royal access. That's, that's very sweet. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure she remembers this now, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, she 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 loved that day. That was a fantastic day to go down with her. But she she was the only one allowed in uh, to the garden party, so we all accompanied her, and uh, she put on her glad rags and. Um, you know, watched as I mean, the, the the basically the royals get to speak to probably what a tenth of the people that actually attend a garden party because it's it's quite a few thousand, I think. What do they a, get to eat? Oh, you know the usual crustless cucumber sandwiches. Oh, I like those. That sort of stuff, and you know, Earl Grey tea or whatever. Oh, oh, I'd like that. I'm sure you would. I'm sure you would. Anyway, look, we, we we're sort of getting stuck here. We need to get to the interview, and we need to get to our our, uh, our news. Um, some other significant news this week. You've got both of those stories. Well, which yeah. one are you going to go for next? Well, um, so we we just talk about this a lot, don't we? Um, oops, that's not the one I was going to read first. So Anthony Horowitz, who has written lots and lots of books, isn't he? Yeah, lots um, for adults and f- uh, particularly famous for writing. Is he Alex Ryder books? Alex Ryder books, but yeah, I mean, an awful lot of uh, fantastic books for children uh, and for young adults. So he's been in the news because um, he's uh, working on a book at the moment and he is reportedly quite shocked at how many notes came back from his publisher about the things that they wanted him to revise in a line of not upsetting anyone. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, can I just grab that a second? Because it's quite a big quote here, but it's a good one. Um, he says, this is Anthony Horowitz, what is happening to writers is extremely dangerous. Where certain words are hidden, where certain thoughts are not allowed anymore, where certain activities are not allowed, obviously to do with gender or to do with ethnicity or to do with trying to share the experiences of others. It's not about cancellation. It's not about anger. It's about the fear that all creative people must now feel if they're going to dare to write. I believe that writers should not be cowed We should not be made to do things because we're so scared of starting a storm on Twitter. Because once you start with the writers entering that tunnel, the whole of society will follow them. And we're all going to be left nudging each other in the dark, too afraid to search for the light. That is sort of where we're heading. Yeah, that's that's very deep, actually. And actually, that really sums up how I feel about the whole situation. Well, yeah, well, me too, and we talk about this. And Well, that's part of the problem, is the Me Too thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Which, they said on the radio today that the Me Too is over. Yeah, pretty much, I think. I think you know, <laughs> it, it, you know it, like so many things, it's the thing for six months, possibly a year, and then it blows out. Something else comes along. Right. Black Lives Matter followed Me Too, and that was 
dominated everything for a year plus, right? Um, and we've had things prior to that. So, yeah, these things tend to be very much uh, Yeah, it's focus. like a wave, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that, that, that social media amplifies that wave mm. now. And, and you know, before that, if you think about, uh, which weren't about cancellation or anything like that, but sometimes you have waves of things where you have to do something to be supportive of something. So, um, for I'll give you a couple of examples that I can think of. First of all, the uh, the attacks on Paris. Yeah. So everyone started putting oh the French flag in a there. tricolor behind their their um, Facebook image. So that became a standard thing. Uh, then there was the ALS challenge for motor neurone disease. So, oh, is that the bucket? Thing? Yeah, the bucket challenge. So that was a thing where everyone did it. Then there was another one where um, everyone was doing those uh, videos where you would be moving through an environment, but everybody else was stock still. Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, that was a thing. in uh, Golf used to do that. And again, that was something that just became a trope for a bit. And then the, the Caroline Flack suicide, where you mm. had this sort of wave of, yeah. of sympathy. Yeah, there was a wave of that. And then there was a wave of, you know, just because you're famous and you're rich doesn't mean we're not vulnerable kind of stuff going on. And then, you know, that was a mental health awareness stuff, wasn't it, really? Which is all, it's all positive, but why doesn't it carry on? Why is because it... it? Because it run, everything runs out of steam. Look, I looked at the newspapers last yesterday, right? And, you, I mean, of course it's going to talk about the Jubilee. Uh, and the papers I was looking at, what do you expect from the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph or indeed the Times? It was just wall-to-wall coverage of, you know, every nuance of... Uh, William and Kate on one side of St Paul's and Harry and Meghan on the other and all this sort of stuff, all these articles about that and about the prince, you know, young Prince Louis stealing the show and all that malarkey. And you're thinking, where's the Ukraine coverage? Everything's been pulled away from... And there's about two stories in the Telegraph, which is dominate. You know, Ukraine has dominated everything, but it's now 102 days into the war and people have got bored of it. I was talking about this with Toby the other day, actually. I was saying, you know, the first couple of months, you'd see people on Twitter saying how scared they were. Oh, yeah. How terrified they were that something bad was going to happen, mm. and now you don't see anything. Well, actually, now the potential for that is even higher. Because, I know. That's the irony. Because, you know, OK, look, I, I, I'm not going to draw a point here, but militarily what's happening is the US have just given the Ukrainians the sort of, um, you know, uh, ground-to-ground missiles which will allow them to attack Russia, not just resist but actually send them into Russia if they chose to do so. And the Americans have said, look, you, can't, you can have these as long as you don't do that because the Russians will escalate big time and attack other countries. Use that as the excuse. So that's where we are at the moment. There's a, there's a, there's a big question mark about all of this. So. Okay. But <laughs> I don't know if we should go there, really. But No, it's the Hopcast book show. We talk about books. <laughs> so let's talk about books then with my mm-hmm. last news item. Um, it's not a surprise, and it comes up every now and then, but um, there's a, a Mary Ann Seacart. Seacart. Seachart. Second line down. Seagart. <laughs> She's the author of a book called The Authority Gap, and it's a sort of a general book about... Um, men and women and and the sort of um, opportunities in all sorts of areas of life but she's highlighted a survey uh, that only 19 percent um of men apparently actively choose to read books written by women whereas 81 percent um 80 percent of sorry 90 percent of of sorry i got this completely confused 
Um, so, <laughs> um, eighty-one percent of men will read books by men as a preference, and 90, only ninety percent of men will read a book by a woman. Whereas the split is fifty-fifty for women. Okay, reading men authors. All right, women so authors. so men still gravitate towards a yeah. male author. Now, so Ian McEwen, I found an article in The Guardian about this, and Ian McEwen made a comment about this. He said, men are said to be more interested in violence and relationships. They often prefer war or crime novels to ones about couples or families. But of course there are loads of men writing about relationships and parents and despair and suicide and all the ways in which love can go wrong. So he's basically saying, you know, it doesn't make sense. That's not an argument that men like to read about guns because a lot of men don't write about guns. Uh, yeah, but a lot. Of... Okay, well, let's just take a step back from what Ian McEwan has said, right? Authors, by their very nature, tend to be quite broad in their thinking in terms of, you know, you can't really write fiction unless you're thinking about the human condition in all of its scenarios and, and whatever. Yes, of course. I mean, as little boys, we might have run around with plastic toy weapons or Nerf guns, as it would be now, but. Uh, pretending to be warlike, but actually, writers are sensitive people by and large. By and large, I mean, it's a generalization, but so I think that you can't extrapolate from the fact that men are writing things that would appeal to women. To but if the audience, if what this is suggesting is that the audience, male audience, do gravitate towards the Reaches and the mm. um, Tom Clancy books and all that stuff, you know. <sighs> Uh, so I don't think necessarily Ian McEwen has nailed his argument <laughs> in re- in riposte. God, I'm using some big words now. Um, I don't know what's got onto me. It's Sunday morning. <laughs> Must be my birthday. Uh, so it, well, not quite my birthday. Anyway, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting thing. And, and I think that it does show that if that's the case, and again, you know, how accurate that data is, I don't know. It does show that that for female authors, women authors, to break into the the uh, consciousness of male readers is quite difficult. But I think it's it's more subtle than that, isn't it? Because we all know that women read more than men. Absolutely. You know, when we're marketing our books, the you know the target audience is female. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of men who read as children, stopped reading, and didn't pick it up. And if they do, they read at Christmas or on holiday. And that's yes. about it. Yes, that's right. There's a child interrupting our podcast. Horrible creature. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think he needs the toilet because we have a toilet broken upstairs. We do, we do. Yeah, we had a bit of a drama. In fact, yesterday was a full of drama, wasn't it? Uh, on two fronts, but we can talk about that after the interview because yeah, I think really think we should get into uh, our interview with Nick Quantrill. So Nick um, is an experienced author who is based in Hull, as we've mentioned before, has written four crime novels, um, which uh, feature Joe Geraghty is his main character. He's very much inspired by another Hull writer and someone who is, uh, you know, I'm a fan of, mm. Ted Lewis. Ted Lewis wrote the book that became Get Carter, the movie. But it was set in Hull originally. And he's one of the sort of, he was the sort of, I suppose, the godfather of British noir mm, writing, you know, hard-boiled kind of stories. And he lived a hard-boiled life, you know, very much 
uh, rags to riches and then rags again, as as we discuss with with Nick. But, you know, just one of those interviews where we were talking, you know, spreading around lots and lots of subjects. But, you know, Nick is very proud of where he's from. And Hull is one of those places which feels almost like an independent state because it's stuck out <laughs> on, the like east, yeah. on the eastern fringe of the north. Um, you know, and it, it you know it takes a long time to get there from anywhere else um, <laughs> by the nature. Of, and if they hadn't put the Humber Bridge in, which was at the time the longest suspension bridge in the world, it really would have been cut off. But that's that improved things a little bit for them. But it is um, it is an extraordinary city, and he's very very proud of it. And that comes through in what we discuss and his books, his uh, life, and his contribution with Hull Noir. So let's talk to the wonderful Nick Quantrill. Well, we are really delighted to be speaking to Nick Quantrill on the Hobcast Book Show. Welcome to the show. Morning. Thank you much for having me. It's great to be kind of with you virtually. You know, it's kind of another way of covering again. We're kind of doing stuff online and in real time, isn't it? You can't blends into one these days but we're uh we're online today i remember that yeah absolutely and um look you're out on a limb a little bit in the country i mean this is always the thing people yeah. from hull say is that <laughs> it's um it's an extraordinary place because of its location and the fact that it's such a big place and yet it's stuck on uh you know on the fringes of the uk in, in in a way is that how you feel about the the, the city yeah yeah i mean you, you need a reason to visit don't you i think that's the kind of the bottom line you know um, when people come they tend to stay you know you know which i think is partly because it's a cheap place to live for whatever reason but yes. um, yeah you know there is that sense that you, you don't pass through like you do with the big cities i suppose and that kind of makes it a little kind of enclave i guess in its own way where we don't we kind of march for our own beat i think you know we're not kind of influenced necessarily by what's going on elsewhere um, you know, people do things because they want to do things, and like the, the art scene in the city is very kind of organic in that way. It's not influenced by maybe what's happening in London or Manchester. It's its own kind of mm. micro system, I suppose, in that sense. But um, yeah, I think I think what City of Culture tried to do was change the the narrative from being the end of the line to the start of the line. You know, we're, we're trying to see ourselves at the start of things now rather than the end of things, which is kind of the uh, the corporate line we must turn. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's very much it's kind of it's the place that's kind of isolated, I think, and. It makes it great as a writer, you know, because you kind of, you've, you've kind of got the whole of society in like a little microcosm because we've got, you know, there's a lot of money in the region which surprises people right down to kind of really tough levels of poverty and social deprivation. So yeah. you've kind of got a whole huge sweep to go out as a writer, I think, in a city like Hull. And it's kind of, it's a place that makes its own kings in that sense, I think, you know, because, you know, a little bit of power in a place like Hull is kind of really kind of damaging in a small number of hands, in, in a number of hands, you know, it's not kind of watered down by people from outside of the city coming in to, uh, to kind of try and take over and things like that. So it's, you know, it's a really kind of interesting city to live and work in, I think. So you, you made me want to go again. I went, I went to Hull once when I was a student and I had a friend who was a student at the university and I went to visit her and I fell in love with her. Mm. And I, I remember that, well, for some reason, I remember you have double-decker buses, which from Stafford, coming from Stafford, we had... <laughs> <It's also laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. um, yeah, yeah. We have double decker buses and electricity and all sorts. Now we know. <laughs> yeah, well, you also have your own communication system. I mean, you, you we know, do, yeah, we do. locally I mean, owned kind of, telephones. Yeah, yeah. that's kind of a really strange whole thing. You know, everybody else has you know plugs into the BT network, don't we? And, we, and Hull has its own Kingston communications network system, which is kind of quite a whole thing to do, I think, in its own way. But um, I think it's been floated on the stock market. Actually, you know, it's been taken over by a big kind of corporate yeah. machine. 
that uh, it's kind of changing. But yeah, that's the kind of kind of odd things that Hull does, I think, you know, kind of, you know, it says, you know, we'll just do our own thing, basically. I <laughs> like is, that, though. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, 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 I confess, <laughs> Nick, I've, <laughs> so, yeah. I've only been the once myself, and that was for a job. And um, so I had this, when I came out of journalism college in 1995, uh, I had two offers. I had uh, a very low-paid job offer in Exeter where I'd been a student, and I thought, okay, that's, you know, and it was like a permanent job, so that was obviously attractive, but it was terrible pay. And then BBC Humberside needed someone for six weeks, and so I went up to see them. Um, and they offered me the, the role, which was fantastic, but I did fall in love with it. It was a beautiful day. And I just, I'm a sucker for anywhere on the coast. Oh, me too. And I mean, any, anything within industrial heritage yeah, as well. Yeah, it's like the combination yeah. of the two, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, yeah. You don't get you know, that in that many places around the UK, but. Yeah, yeah. And Hull has such a great historical tradition, doesn't it? You know, it was a home of William Wilberforce. Um, it was a place where the Civil War sort of kicked off effectively when we refused King access to the city. So, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of really kind of interesting history in the city, and the, and the architecture reflects that, I think, as well. But, um, yeah, it's got that kind of like gritty urban industrial neglect about it as well. And um, yeah, you know, it's kind of it's got everything, hasn't it? You know, and, uh, you know, like you say, we're half an hour away from the coast and, the, you know, great countryside like the world and things like that. It's just, you know, it's fantastic. We shouldn't talk about it because people want to come and live here you now. <laughs> yeah, they're going to get flooded with people wanting to live there now. So yeah. really it was very much kind of what happened with City of Culture. I think people came to sort of um, just, just to sort of have a look, really. And we're surprised at how how nice it was and, you know, how pleasant it was. And, you know, kind of, like I say, I go back to that thing that you need a reason to come and visit. You don't just pass through. So, you know, City of Culture gave people that reason, I think. And it, it was a bit of a game changer in that respect. You know, even, mm. even you know, the, the tourism figures are a lot, lot higher than what, what they have been sort of historically. And you know, there's a completely different feel to the city. There's a confidence about it, I think, now that wasn't there, you know, probably when you came in the 90s, you know, when it was kind of really on the kind of on the uppers in that sense you know there, there wasn't yeah, a lot going on at that stage but you know city of culture has kind of completely changed the mindset i think in, in that respect well that's great i mean because it was it really was on its uppers and um yeah. you know the the, the the port was struggling the fishing industry was next to nothing and and it, yeah it did feel that way um but in terms of you know writing your books and centering them in in hull how, how much richness can you draw on then from all the things that you've mentioned yeah, I mean, when I started to write, it was always going to be about Hull because it, I felt like I was the only person in Hull writing books at the time. And I, I started kind of about 10 years ago, maybe longer, 15 years ago, really. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't know anybody else doing it. It just felt like it was kind of, it was it was ground that hadn't been broken. It was new territory for a writer to kind of attack in that sense. So, you know, and I was very lucky that when I started to write the first novel that was published, Broken Dreams, Hull had just been crowned the UK crap town of the year. Uh, it was like it was a it was a magazine or a book that did this poll once you know i think they still do it it's a bit it's a bit nasty it's punching downwards on places really um but you know it kind of gave me something to kick back against uh, mm. and as i kind of wrote the, the, those first three garrity novels i went on this amazing journey from being uk crap town to uk city of culture uh you know and as a writer that kind of backdrop when you're writing about a city it was just it was incredible because you know the social change that was happening the money that was coming into the city and the you know, when you have money, you have crime, don't you? Have, you have power and you have kind of interesting relationships developing between uh, between institutions and between people. So, you know, Paul was a gift to me as a writer when I started to write. You know, it was incredible. I was incredibly lucky that uh, it was my home city and I had something I could really get my teeth into. And um, it, like I said, that whole sweep from 
the, the terrible deprivation and poverty levels and this is right through to people sitting on huge piles of money and, and power and influence for such a it was, I just I couldn't resist it, you know. I just wanted mm. to write about it, you know. And, and it was kind of I always think of it, it's like me explaining the city to myself, really. You know, I was trying to make yeah. sense of where I lived. That's how I kind of approached it, really. So, you know, yeah, it, it was always going to be Hull, I think, because I was always I've always been a big fan of Ian Rankin in the way that he writes about Edinburgh with with his Reeves novels. And I guess that was kind of the blueprint. I wanted to kind of take that and and write about Hull in the same way. Um, you know, and then since then, I think there's been an explosion of writing in Hull, which I think you know, is part of the city of culture. But you know, people like David Mark obviously came along and wrote amazing set of novels in Hull. Um, and you know, it's kind of it's just kind of exploded in that sense. So you know, Hull's not kind of that city where nobody's writing about it anymore. It's kind of there's competition <laughs> everywhere. You turn a corner and there's another writer there to bump into. So yeah, you know, it's completely changed in that respect. But I think it's a rich background without doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and and in, did you feel sort of? Um when you started out and, and the, there wasn't that sort of wellspring of, of people writing did you feel kind of isolated was it yeah. were you a lone voice or was was there a community already at this point um the, the art scene in Hull I guess then and, and, and now is quite a mixed one you know like there's not really a crime scene as such it's more of an art scene so you know maybe I'll go out to mm. the library to events and there'll be there'll be poets there or there'll be um, stand-up comedians whatever it might be you know there's kind of like a strong sense of an arts community in the city but it's not kind of just kind of defined by crime fiction in that sense, you know. And I quite I quite like having that influence of other people talking about whole through their poetry or through through whatever they might be writing. It might be they might be writing kind of even science fiction stuff, you know, whatever it is they're writing, and they're, they're kind of obliquely talking about whole in some way. It's kind of a very kind of um, kind of an influential sort of scene in that sense, I think, for me. Yeah, eventually finding those people, and, and it was a city of culture again. Yeah, it was about city of culture was about building infrastructure of local artists, I think. Uh, and we got the chance to meet up once a month for uh, an event in the Central Library called Heading a Book, mm. uh, which was a live literature night. And, it, you know, one month it might be a crime writer as a special guest, the next month it might be a poet, the month after it might be a non-fiction writer, but it brought people together that to come together in the same space once a month and go to the pub afterwards and just talk about what you're doing and, you know, kind of, you start to kind of cross paths in terms of working together on projects. Uh, you know, so it's always been kind of Hull's had kind of like a very open sort of art scene and a very friendly art scene, I think, and that continues. Um, so yeah, it kind of I didn't I didn't feel isolated at the start. I think writing is kind of something you do privately, isn't it? You know, you kind of spend a lot of time hunched over your laptop uh, <laughs> by yourself. Um, so yeah, you know, that that sense of isolation is something I never really felt as a writer. But I think Hull started to change at the right time for me. And then you know, obviously the explosion in social media with Twitter and Facebook and being able to connect with. With writers around the world, essentially, to be able to sort of actually the fact with them and, and and kind of form supportive networks has been has been great. So yeah, I don't feel isolated at all as a writer anymore. But um, yeah, I think I think it comes with confidence as well. When I started, I didn't tell anybody I was writing. You know, it was just something I did very secretively by myself on my laptop. Uh, and then when somebody wants to publish your book, you think, oh, I want to tell people about this now. <laughs> and you kind, yeah. of, <laughs> you, know, you kind of become something a bit, bit bigger and a bit different in that sense, and you have to become somebody who's kind of I guess out there whether it's kind of online or in person but um, yeah 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 but I kind of yeah there's always been a great supportive network I think to tap into and that's been important I think. You have a brilliant website so I mean you've almost got the, the Nick Quantrill brand is, uh, <laughs> is, the, is well yeah, established I, by the look of it. Yeah I'd like to claim the credit for that but obviously Fahrenheit Press um, designed those book covers for the Garrity novels and, and the lot together don't there's a skyline which is amazing uh, and then and uh, the people who designed my website were able just to use that as a template. So, 
yeah, yeah, I, I feel really lucky that those covers are so so striking and so different to what you yeah. see um, elsewhere on the crime bookshelves. Because yeah, crime crime novels kind of it's easy into the fondness that habit of them of the covers looking a bit like somebody else's covers. Because I you know, I understand it's necessary for marketing and you know it makes it easier to place a book and sort of communicate a message to the to the potential buyer and reader. But uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I was really pleased when 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 I was sent those covers. Um, how, how great they look because yeah, I think. It's one of the terrifying things as a writer when your publisher sends you a cover and it's just kind of arrived in your inbox as an attachment so you can't see it. You've got to wait for it to download those few seconds. And you're kind of thinking, <laughs> what if I hate it? What if I hate it? This will be terrible. And you're I, like, could, I could assure you, oh. it's the same from, from our perspective. So when I'm sending a cover to an author, I'm thinking, <gasps> and every time my inbox pings, I think, they're going to say they hate it. <laughs> it's, it's terrifying. But then I guess, you know, it's about communication, isn't it, between the author and the publisher, isn't it? You know, and when, yeah. If you're on the same page and you've discussed it and you, and you kind of know what you're trying to achieve, then fingers crossed you're going to get there, yeah. right? You we do a happy dance, don't we, when they love it? We, we do. I mean, because, we, you know, we can go through three or four restorations until they get straight, yeah. but other people, you know, sometimes just nail it and it's it's spot on. I mean, because we wouldn't we wouldn't do a dictatorial, this is your cover and stick it no. kind of approach. But, I mean, I'm sure Fahrenheit wouldn't behave like no, that well, either. We were, looking, we were looking at their website this morning, weren't we? Well, I have we to say, you've been up... Nick, you've been a gateway into the Fahrenheit world for us this morning, oh. and we've just gone, wow. I love the covers. I love the feel of the website. It's It's got that sort of gritty crime as opposed to... I think it's important isn't it? for people like Fahrenheit and for yourselves. It's about kind of communicating who you are, isn't it? How you stand out from the market as a small yeah. press publisher. It's, it's, it's important isn't it, to be able to kind of communicate that message to to readers. And, you know, and I think I think you, know, so you do that really well as do Fahrenheit. So... Um, yeah, you know, I think you know, covers are so important, aren't they? It's, it's difficult to kind of um, encapsulate a novel into it in an image like that, but when you get it right, it really works. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I mean, your Joe Geraghty series, uh, four books strong now? Um, yes, yes. Well, it's, a it's a trilogy of four books, I like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've, we've heard that before. We've got, we've got some of our some of our authors have stretched theirs to five now, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Trilogy. Well, it was originally a trilogy, yeah. yeah but then, <laughs> but then, uh, well, now we're going to down a rabbit hole. Um, George Lucas did write a, a, a sort of overall arc of nine films, oh. and so that was released quite early. And when the first film came out, and I was reading as a kid, you know, seven years old, devouring anything Star Wars I could find, there was this promise of another six films at some point, and you know, we there was a potential for for nine films. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And you know, unfortunately, he didn't get to finish his vision because Disney messed up the last three. Big time, mind you, he messed up the first three too. So, (laughs) anyway, we've gone down a rabbit hole. Um, (laughs) Never mind. Um, So, Joe Garrity, uh, how how, had your original trilogy? So, how difficult was it to come back to the character for for a fourth? Yeah, actually, I enjoyed it, and I I love the process because. As we say, it was conceived as a trilogy to start with, uh, and it was originally published by Cafe Knights. Uh, and when they decided that they weren't going to kind of carry on down that crime fiction route any longer and, and reverted the rights back to me, um, I was very lucky that Fahrenheit Press was sort of straight in to say we'd love to put them back out. Uh, but kind of the deal essentially was that you write a new Garrity novel to go with them. So yeah. it was a challenge for me because at, at that stage I was thinking that, you know, I'd done with the character, that was kind of it. I told the story. Uh, and, I, and I didn't have any intention of writing any more Joe Garrity stories in that sense. Um, but when it was kind of put on the table to me, and I kind of thought about it, that there'd been this gap of maybe three or four years between books three and four, 
and Hull had gone through that kind of city of culture process mm -hmm. and was starting to adjust to kind of post culture uh, in that sense, you know, was kind of saying what's left, who's, who's won from this process, who's lost from it. I kind of began to realize that there was a really kind of interesting opportunity to write about Hull through his eyes again. So it was, yeah, I really kind of embraced the challenge of doing that. And it was really kind of interesting as well from Joe's perspective, because at the end of book three, without kind of giving away any spoilers, I sent him away, I sent him away from Hull. He'd kind of moved away. You know, it felt like he was done with the city, that the city had shunned him and turned its back on him. So I had to kind of think about, right, why would he come back to Hull? What would get him back? Um, so it was kind of, it was a really interesting process as a writer to kind of start with this framework that was already sort of in place, but then tweak it into something that interested me enough to want to write another 80,000 words about him. So, yeah, you know, I was, I was really kind of pleased that in our day I got the chance to write a, a fourth journal in that sense and really kind of examine uh, what had happened to Hull in, the, in, the, in those last sort of three or four years after after he left it really on the cusp of the city of culture to now where we're kind of looking around thinking, well, what was the point? What we kind of gained from this process? So yeah, you know, it was a really kind of a really kind of interesting challenge and one that I loved doing. And it became a really fast level to write in that process because I'd kind of got that framework and I'd kind of it was kind of easy enough to get back into his shoes again in that sense. You know, I felt like I could kind of kind of do it after writing so many novels and short stories with him. And it was just kind of it's like putting on a comfy pair of slippers again. I think. You know? Oh, that's good. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah but it's interesting because I mean we were. Before we started the interview, we were talking about uh, Get Carter, and you've got your fantastic film poster behind you um, as we as we speak. Uh, and in a sense, Ted Lewis, when he was writing um, the, the book originally, now rebadged as Get Carter, but it was all about a character coming back to Hull originally. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. the film took it to Newcastle. Um, and and did you draw any sort of inspirational parallels from that sort of feeling that your character is coming back to a place which has changed? And not deliberately, no. But you're not the first person who said that to me in an interview position when I've kind of realised, like, oh god, I have done that, haven't I? Yeah, I have done that. <laughs> yeah. And done that. So I think I've just kind of yeah, I just kind of must have soaked it up like like you do as a writer. You know, you read so many books and you watch so many things and you kind of soak up all these storylines and ideas and what other people are doing and you kind of regurgitate it and spit it back out in your own way, don't you, in that sense? So, mm. yeah, yeah, I think without kind of realising, I kind of had mimicked that get character structure of a, a character return to the city to wrong, uh, to, to right a wrong, sorry. So, uh, yeah, 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 like that influence of Ted was kind of coming through, I think, in some of the scenes without maybe kind of realising it, because the kind of influence I always think I get from Ted is more that sort of terse, kind of dialogue-driven, sort of yeah. slightly Irish feel more, more than that, more than anything else. So that's kind of what, kind of come through for me from Ted and that sense of using Hull and the Humber as a place to write novels you know Ted was doing that before it was you know fashionable at all you know he was kind of very much shunning uh, writing about London and, and the big cities so you know I always felt that was the influence I took from Ted but then yeah people pointed out to me that Joe is a returning character to his city and you know and he's kind of going to get to the bottom of this kind of death of someone who was close to him when he loves uh, and he's going to sort that, that situation out and that's kind of having to get counter into it yes yeah. <laughs> Well, as, you know, I mean, I'm sure we've, we, well, I mean, we've, we've been discussing how many times we've seen it. And, well, and... well, we should talk about how I got into Get Carter, shouldn't we? Yes, yes. maybe, maybe. But you, 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 were what, you were watching clips of it over and over again. And I yeah, was yeah. like, what is this you're watching? What is it? I don't know what it is. And then you said, right, OK, we're going to sit and watch this film. And I sat there and I got my laptop out to do a bit of work while I was watching. He said, no, 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 you can't work at the same time as watching this. <laughs> so I put the laptop away, but I picked up my phone. He said, no, 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 put your phone no. down. <laughs> you, you cannot fiddle you have to watch everything so, everything is so cleverly I, put I was together. feeling a bit stroppy but I thought okay fine 
And I was sucked in from the beginning and I loved it. I've never, I'd never seen it. This was what, a year ago, a year ago. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. I love the dialogue. I love the, the imagery. I love the everything. The cinematography is amazing. And yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, and it, uh, to, to be the first film by Mike Hodges was, I mean, and deliver to that level is extraordinary. I mean, I suppose there's only one flaw with it in my book, which is uh, Michael coming back to Newcastle, his hometown, and, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> sadly like that the whole way through. It ain't going to work. I mean, that that wasn't, that's the only bit that, you know, that's incredulous. Yeah, yeah. In fact, everyone goes, oh, you're back, you know, and yeah, whatever. And in were... fact, that, that weren't many that Geordie accents in it anyway. I mean, they were, they were quite soft yeah. accents. You know, they? John Osborne yeah. doesn't have one. Um, yeah, the bloke who play, yeah. plays Eric doesn't have one. Lee Charles says you're allowed one kind of coincidence or one sort of, um, you kind of want like a misstep, aren't you? Where, you know, like Jack Reacher has to get off the bus in the middle of nowhere and walk into trouble and immediately. You're allowed to do one thing that stretches the kind of, the credibility of the story, aren't you? I think so. Maybe that's Michael Caine there turning up with his uh, his London yeah. accent. <laughs> well, I don't know how long he'd been in the London gangs, but I mean, I'm sure it, you know, if you're a Geordie, you don't pick up. It's, I think a, a, a much better example, perhaps, is is uh, Daniel Craig in Our Friends in the North, who, <laughs> as Geordie, goes yeah. down to London and gets involved in the rackets in, in Soho and slightly adjusts his accent from broad Geordie to slightly less. Um, I think that that's better delivered, but you know. Anyway, that's the one error. But otherwise, yeah, that's interesting, is it? Because I didn't notice that. What the fact that he was speaking like that? No, I didn't notice. Yeah, that. yeah that's okay. <laughs> yeah, but you, you just kind of go along with it, don't you? Like I say, you, you just buy into the character, don't you? And what they're doing, and it's. A, I think at heart, it's a very simple tale, and it's incredibly well told. You know, it's that it's a very simple tale of revenge. Uh, it's a revenge uh, tragedy, isn't it? I mean, you, you yeah, know, yeah, be, yeah, it's a, it's if a Marlowe had written it, you'd understand. You know. Yeah, and I, I think that's a genius of it. It's just a very simple story told in such a compelling and complex way that you kind of, you, you kind of, you, 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 let's say you watch it repeatedly, don't you? And you kind of find new things in it all the time. Absolutely. You never get bored of that type of film and that type of filmmaking. So that's kind of the genius of it, I think, yeah. That's right. And it's a sadness that we went around looking for locations and, um, it, you know, so the Blythe Stathe, where which played a part in the final scenes where, you know, he's chasing Eric around and he's about to bump him off. Um, is no longer there. That sort of long, um, extraordinary wooden structure stretching out um, has gone. Um, and obviously the beaches that were black with, with coal waste are now pristine in Northumberland. So, you, yeah. you know, Northumberland, you, you, you don't get that, that feel anymore. But I did, the other day we went up to Sunderland to watch Cambridge United play Sunderland and we went past, uh, we got lost, and we went past the, the, the house that, that played the part of um, the big bad guys, you know, home, John Osborne's yeah. um, place. And I got so excited. It was just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> you know, that's the, the way I, my mind works. But yeah, it's, I mean, I think um, I hadn't appreciated the imp impact of Ted Lewis or indeed his story until I read, uh, started reading Nick Triplo's book about um, getting Carter or what it, um, yeah, getting yeah, Carter. Uh, yeah, the biography, yeah. Here we go. I'll wave it. I'll wave it for the for the camera. But um, just what an extraordinary life he had. I mean, yeah. uh, in the sense of his uh, one minute very charming, and the next minute the most obnoxious man in the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's rags to riches and back to rags again, isn't it? In that sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's an, it's an incredible story, you know. And you know, 
if Nick Triplo is a leading world authority on Ted Lewis, then I think I'm maybe the second authority because we've spent so many <laughs> car journeys trying around to do events together around the north of England, talking about Ted Lewis, that you just can't help but soak it up. And it, as you say, it's such a, a compelling story and there's such a compelling life he led, you know, he's there everywhere, isn't he? you know, his fingerprints are on everything. And, you know, not only did he write Get Carter, you know, probably what, one of the two greatest crime films we've got in this country, you know, along with maybe The Long Good Friday, them two, I think, yeah. stand kind of head and shoulders apart, don't they? You know, he's there, he went with the Beatles in London in the 60s on the Yellow Submarine film. Uh, he wrote for Doctor Who, you know, all those kind of cultural touchstones we, we kind of love as, as a nation. Ted was there, working on them and kind of on the fringes yeah. of the things. And it's just incredible, isn't it? Like, it was such an untold story like that just kind of appeared and Nick Triple, you know, done an amazing job of piecing those bits together and telling his life story like that. And um, yeah, it was such a big thing for us, but the city of culture, you know, for our whole noir festivals to tell the story of Ted Lewis and his work, you know, because, you know, people only tend to know Jack's return home and get Carter, the novel, but his, his other, his, you know, there's four or five other novels which are absolutely incredible and, you know, and are touchstones of modern crime fiction writing, you know, they very much influences on people like David Peace and Jay Carner, you know, those kind of like really dark writers that we've got. Um, and some of those novels are set in Hull as well, you know, people didn't know that and they were out of print when we started this process and, you know, mainly through Nick Triplo's work, there's now five novels back in print and available to purchase. And, you know, I think oh, that's, that's, a great, good. that's a great legacy, I think, of what Nick's yeah. done for Ted's work. I think, like, absolutely. Right. Uh, it's your birthday next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I have to add Jonathan Peace to that list now. Right. Uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. on Amazon, okay? Yeah. 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 So our, our very own Jonathan Peace um, is also, I think, in that, in that trajectory you know, with Ted's work. Yeah. Those dark, yeah. young stories are something that Jonathan has very much tapped into. But, comes from Ted, I think, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of, um, we mentioned Nick now, Nick Triplo, uh, and clearly close mate, and you've done a lot of things together, but, um, you know, one of the things that you both brought together was Hull Noir. Yeah, um, yeah. So what's the state of, I mean, because you've held festivals physical and you had to have a digital one. Did, Where, yeah. where's, what's the state of play for the, for the organisation now? So at the moment, we're just kind of about to submit a funding bid to, to work on um, projects that will take us through the rest of this year and then 2023. So uh, it's very much fingers crossed at the moment. You know, the, the aim is to bring it back as a physical festival and do it in Hull, um, a day-long day festival probably next springtime. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, at the moment, we've still got a little bit of money left from last year's festival, so we're kind of using that to put on pop-up events. So we've, we've, we've done one with, um, with, the next one will be with David Young, uh, whose book, Death in Bliss yeah. City, in a hole in the way in World War II, a crime novel. We're helping him launch that at the library in July. Uh, we've got more events planned for the rest of the year. So really, we're just kind of keeping the name out there and doing events and doing... We're trying to move offline, but back away from the online events and doing back in person in the, in the region as much yeah. as we can. But yeah, you know, we're very much hoping that we'll get the funding from the Arts Council and we'll be back in business probably with a festival sort of March, April next year. But um, it, it's, it's public money, isn't it? It's difficult kind of being able to kind of get them string loosened so we'll just see how it goes but um you know we think we're trying to offer something a bit different for the crime festivals because we kind of operate on that basis that we're kind of a bit dark you know we kind of explore the more kind of noir type of writing the darker type of crime writing we know we're not we're not as banged by having to to put uh, to put to put booking those really big names you know we've kind of got a bit of a leeway there so we're trying to get a balance but we're trying to bring in sort of writers from smaller presses um through to like the authors that we like at the bigger books as well so you know we're hoping that we'll kind of be back with it next year and we'll kind of get it as a constant fixture on the crime fiction calendar again yeah absolutely yeah. and who who? i mean sort of when you set it up who did you have you attracted since 
that time? Um, yeah, so we're, we're, uh, I mean, for the first festival, obviously, we had we had some really big hits. We had like Matt Billingham and Martin Nicole came along. Yeah. Like, uh, but I was really pleased that we managed to get Jay Carnot to come along and do a, a crime fiction festival oh, wow. because, you know, he wrote the... Um, the long firm and he kills coppers. That's the ones, yeah, which were on TV, weren't they, with with uh, Mark Strong in? Um, yeah, it's fantastic. He's a brilliant writer, but he doesn't tend to do crime festivals in this country. And we managed to kind of persuade him along because we were working on that legacy of Ted Lewis, you know, and, and that's something that mm. Jake kind of valued. So, um, yeah. yeah, so you know, those, and then we kind of last year we had Ian McGuire involved, who wrote The North Water which is it's a novel that starts in Hull before kind of going out to the ICCs of the around uh, around the North Atlantic and stuff. But um, again, you know, it's not a book you would find necessarily racked in the crime section if you went into Waterstones because it was book along listed. So, you know, it's in the serious fiction area. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a crime novel. It's a crime novel. You know, it's about, it's about mm. a murder, you know. But again, Ian doesn't get invited to crime festivals because he's not perceived as being a crime writer where we kind of very much saw it as a, as a crime novel at its heart, you know, and Ian was kind of happy and willing to come along and take part in our festivals. So that's the kind of thing we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to just kind of go a little bit further than the festivals doing that direction and try and bring in a, a wider sweep of writers to talk mm. about things that might be considered crime writing. But I like that though, because you because you're not so, so specifically in a genre that, yeah. that you've got. You know, there's a, there's a bit more diversity there, and well, I've been I, influenced I... by people who they. I've always argued, for instance, that you could quite happily invite anyone who's written for Doctor Who to a crime festival, because let's be honest, (laughs) every, you know, especially when you're looking at something like the era of the 70s and Tom Baker, particularly, they were crime stories. Okay, set in different places and on different planets, but they're all murder mysteries. I mean, (laughs) I've got to remember I got invited to write something. I don't know, but um, they ultimately might use these scripts, but um, yeah, you know. that, that's a good thing about being able to use public money in that sense is that we've got a bit more a bit more leeway in what we do i think we're not just kind of thinking we must sell tickets you know because we're kind yeah. of we kind of got that we've got that sort of financial cushion in that sense to try and do something a, a little bit interesting to us i suppose as programmers and organizers that we can try and get those authors like jay Carter involved and, and so on and mm. just you know just do something a little bit different to other festivals because like you say it's back to that thing about branding isn't it the book covers you even with a festival, you've got to stand on your own two feet in a sense that people need to know who we are and what we do. And yeah. why should they come to a festival and not maybe spend the money coming somewhere else? So, yeah, it's a case of saying this is what we're about as a festival and that's what we try and do, yeah. But you're also going to attract the sort of people who appreciate that as well. So, people yeah, like yeah. us, actually. Yeah, yeah, to be fair, it would be <laughs> so, us, yeah. There's a balance to be struck, isn't there, of course. You know, we, you know we'll, we'll always invite kind of mainstream authors along as well and new authors. It's about trying to get that blend in to give people a platform to... Yeah. And maybe just sort of surprise the audience a little bit and say, you know, you, you maybe come along because you want to hear Martina Cole speak about her latest sort of novel, but you might want to hear from Jake Arnold as well. You know, maybe you don't know much about what Jake's done until you kind of hear him talk. And then, you know, it's just discovering something new and different, isn't it? I think. And that's great. It's, it, to do that. I mean, how do you feel about, you know, just down the road or up the road, I don't know, across and then up? Um, <laughs> Harrogate. <laughs> better than that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, because I, I roll my eyes a little, I must admit, when I looked at, you know, this year's list is going to be. And okay, it's a bit more international because people can travel, but nonetheless, it's the same suspects every year, it feels it to me. It's, yeah, I mean, and it's very much, it's, it's, it's a commercial operation, isn't it? It's kind of like Glastonbury, yeah. isn't it, in that sense? So it kind of, I think, to be fair, as a festival, the, you know, the, the new Blood Panel, isn't it, which Val McDermott programmes with... Yes, yeah. It's incredibly difficult to get involved in the festival, isn't it, of course, but um, 
there is a bit of a right in there, I think, in terms of what they're doing. But as you say, the headliners tend to be drawn from that same small pool. And that's, that's something we've grappled with as a festival as well, because when you're thinking, who should we have as our headliner? There is only that small number of writers who can attract an audience big enough to fill a room in that sense. You know, it, it is, mm. it's very difficult. You know, there are writers might, I think, maybe like a B. Mukherjee and Mick Herron, mm. who are kind of coming through, who, who might kind of elevate themselves to that level of headliner in a big festival. But it's a slow process, isn't it? You know, you're still looking at them big beasts who can who can kind of shift tickets and people want to come. And yeah, listen it's to Rankin, it. McDermott, Billingham. You know that, yeah, that kind of yeah. It's Brooke it's Meyer. Sirian, Sirian, I'm so sorry. Sirian, now, yeah, Sirian, as he is after yesterday. So it's difficult to kind of break that cycle, I suppose. But um, yeah, I, mean, I think Harrogate has more value as being. Um, it's a networking event, isn't it, for people to a large degree? Yeah, it's great to go along That's and hang Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah yeah so i mean I like, I like to sort of dip into the panels when i'm there maybe do a couple of days but i'm essentially there to kind of catch up with other writers and people in the industry and just kind of you know especially after after lockdown as well for two years we've not been able to people it's just great to be in a kind of a room full of people again or a tent full of people uh and, and so i've got books that you've read and books that you've loved and what you're working on and i always come away hugely energized by harrogate uh, as a festival you know I kind of come back and want to just start writing straight away because I've kind of been listening to what the people are doing and, and what they're about mm. to do. And you think, oh, catch up. I need to, I need to crack on. So now I think I'm, I feel very lucky that it's only an hour or so away from Hull that I can get there and just hang around and, and, and speak to people without having to sort of travel huge distance to do that. But um, yeah, we're, I know we're very much in their shadow as a festival. You can't kind of compete with that type of, uh, that type of operation, can you? It's a, it's a huge beast. But, uh, it is a beast it is a beast yeah. but I, I i would argue i mean this is what i've been i've said this many times on the podcast there is surely scope for the fringe element uh yeah so just as glastonbury's got the john peel stage we're gonna have a yeah. teepee uh or yeah. the acoustic stage yeah. for, the, for those smaller acts to, to appear in you know you yeah. could do they put up a marquee last time and why not turn that over to some of the the smaller yeah. indies and 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 you know independent writers and and people of you know by all means you don't want to just track from your headliners but you don't need to just have one thing on at one time surely it would yeah. be but you know that would be the way forward i think to to, yeah, to diversify I mean, a little bit Scotland do it well don't they where they have an author read before a panel event don't they so that author will mm. be oh, yes, more, do, yeah. uh, you know say it's, it's an opportunity for maybe writers with a smaller press to come in read their work to an audience and I, yeah I think that that's a really good idea and that's something that you know it's very much in our radar as a festival as well is that how can we help other writers other than just having that mm. more of 20 on the program how can we kind of get more people involved and uh, things like Noir at the Bar are a great initiative for getting authors involved oh, yeah. get more faces in front of people but yeah you're right you know I'm sure there's ways that you can kind of do a bit more at a festival then you know, well I'll be lobbying I'll, I'll probably make myself very um, unpopular with yeah. um, Harrogate International Festivals when I do that, but uh, that's that's certainly what I I I, I yeah. come only being having only been to one. Um, that's that's my conclusion, and I think that that's where I think Crime Fest has the edge as well. Yeah. Um, they're much more, you know, they they had a, a really good mix of of big and and um, and new. Um, uh, and bloody Scotland, same... you mentioned bloody Scotland. I loved bloody Scotland. Yeah, I, I, that's my favourite so far. There's one festival I've not managed to get to yet because it's just so far away and it's difficult. Uh, it's far away from Well, you. I'll it's tell you what. We'll uh, we'll pick you up on the way. I mean, it's only a small. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we'll 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 have a sort of charabang up to <laughs> up to right, Sterling. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, I, I, one question has been burning in the back of my head um, since you mentioned Jake Arner, and uh, also checking out your um, Spotify 
um, list of tunes to <laughs> to enjoy yeah. your novels by. Yeah. Um, and then there's uh, so there's a Bowie track on there from the Spiders and Mars uh, yeah. Spiders from Mars era, and of course many people will not remember this, but apart from Bowie, everyone else was from Hull in that right. in the band. Uh, Woody Woodman, C, Trevor Boulder, and um, obviously, yeah, I mean the Immortal. Yeah. Um, so, uh, is, is Bowie a, a thing for you, or it was more? It was a backing band, you know. The fact that we're from Hull, which is incredible, you know, like that. You get that kind of crazy glam look, don't you, with the makeup and the crazy clothes and, and that kind of femininity to it. And these were like three blokes from Hull who were working like in <laughs> like manual jobs at the time, sort of thing. You know, and Bowie persuades them to go along with this vision of his, which is it, it, it just struck me as absurd in its own sort of way. But they absolutely did, didn't they? And and the kind of you know. I, I like Bowie. He's not one of my kind of top top artists in that sense, but I think Bowie was at his best when those lads from Hull were backing him up. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just an incredible story, and I've been very lucky that uh, I've done a couple of events with Woody in fairly recently. Yeah. I got to sit down with him and talk about his um, his biography at that time, his memoir around the that sort of like seventy to seventy three period, whatever it would be. Yeah. Uh, and one event where we did a playback of Aladdin Sane, where I got to sit on stage with him as they played the album to an audience, and Woody spoke about it. So, you know, I got to sit there next to Woody, the drummer, as he's tapping away to the songs he drummed along with Bowie at the time in the 70s and hear his thoughts on it. And it's just, it's incredible, yeah, incredible. But, yeah, just to have those three lads from Hull who were just, it's hard to imagine that happening now, isn't it, that, that an artist would just kind of pick up a band from Hull or a, another sort of very kind of like cultural outpost in that sense and have them kind of be his backing band. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I've, yeah, I've, I've, I've not shared the stage with him, but I've, I've been to see Holy Holy, the, the yeah, band that yeah. he's, uh, you know, that's all fractured now, I think, with relationship yeah, with Tony yeah. Visconti. But um, it's great to see him, you know, he, he you know, he, look, he does look like a sort of an elderly truck driver on the yeah. drums nowadays. <laughs> yeah. he has a he's, exactly, he's exactly like a man from, you know, like any bloke from his hull in his whatever, you know, 60s now he'll be, won't he? Nudging towards 70, I guess. Yeah, he's uh, in his 70s, uh, I guess, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah there's, a, there's no airs and graces about Woody, you know, there's nothing. You, you, you wouldn't imagine he was a spider from Mars when you beat him, you know, it's just kind of, he's, he's incredible, the incredible force of nature. And I, I love the story that he tells and, and um, before he passed away, Trevor Boulder used to tell about how... Uh, they saw what Bowie was going to do with the clothes and the makeup, and yeah. they went, "You yeah, what? We're not wearing that." <laughs> you know? And then, You're joking. Yeah, you've got to be joking. Then he saw they saw just how many girls were flocking because yeah. of the, the makeup, yeah. and then they went, "Right, where's the mascara?" <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's brilliant. And it's just it's one of those things again, you know, like places like Hull and other cities like it. There'll be so much talent hidden away in it, you know. And then it was, you know. And in that case, you know, Bowie managed to find it, didn't he? He managed to find kind of Mick Ronson, mm. and Mick Ronson brought Woody and, and, and Trevor with him. But, um, yeah, you wouldn't have any other kind of spiders from Mazda that are around the country who maybe didn't kind of make it in that sense or are still out there plugging away and not kind of getting that break because they're not a London-centric kind of operation. So, Is, is that yeah. still a frustration in the city, do you think? I mean, OK, the culture thing has really, really yeah. changed, changed the dynamic a bit. But, you know, hand on heart, if you were asking, when I went for that job, uh, I think I probably relied on the fact that I knew the house Martins were from Hull, and that was about all I knew. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and and if I'm, not, I love the house. Martins. And if I'm not much mistaken, <laughs> Philip Larkin was a librarian at the university. Was that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Gosh, so yeah. those were the two things that I could sort of point to. I, you know, I know how to get here, and I know those two things, and that was my interview. I mean, it was 
honestly. And they offered you the job for that. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, should have slapped me and sent me packing. Back but... to the south for you. <laughs> <laughs> but well, it's yeah, awful, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's changed because the internet's changed the world, hasn't it? We're, we're a lot more connected now, aren't we? So, you know, we're never that far apart from other people and being able to kind of, you know, for bands or whatever you can kind of put your music online and it's, it's a lot easier to be noticed in that sense, isn't it? You really got to kind of cut through an awful lot of noise, I suspect, to, to get that attention. But yeah, back in the 80s and 90s, pre-internet days, yeah, you had to go to London, didn't you, if you're from Hull or from all those other kind of like provincial cities, if you wanted to be yeah. kind of noticed and spotted. But I think I think that game has changed um, for better or worse with the internet in that sense. And, you know, it's, that connection is what kind of drives it, I think. But um, yeah, I think there is still a slight, you know, I, I, I still don't see a lot of bands around the city and things like that. And I think there is a, still a that kind of slight resentment that you have to go to you have to go to them in london rather than they will come to you up north it's still kind of that, that attitude oh, yeah. still persists i think doesn't it but, well, um, i think there's an element of that in publishing too i i, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, i'm sure yeah, yeah. Set up this company 20 years ago in no, well, I mean, we still face a little bit of snobbery, yeah. if I'm honest with you, when yeah. we meet members from the traditional London centric yeah. public. You're set up where? Staffordshire. Yeah. Where's well, that? It, well, it was, it was you know, literally, you have been asked, so, where's that? Well, so, <laughs> we were at Crime Fest and somebody did say, where are you based? And when we said Staffordshire, she said, oh, I don't know why I assumed London. And she looked genuinely <laughs> yeah. shocked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think we're seeing that with a lot of smaller presses are popping up aren't around the country. Yeah. You know, I mean, certainly in Yorkshire, Blue Moose uh, will produce all sorts of great books. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Based out of Hebden Bridge, out there. You know, it's, it's becoming more and more common, as you say. It's connection, isn't it? The internet makes it, a, makes it well, I say a leveler. It's more of a, it kind of makes, it makes the process a little bit more level, doesn't it? It's not going to be a leveler, but it does give you a heightened chance, I think, because uh, as a startup business like yourselves and others was doing that. Uh, yeah, I think it's democratised things. Yeah, I don't think we need London in the same way that we did, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It's kind of, you know, thinking is changing, you know, however slowly that is happening, even with the, the bigger publishers setting up offices in Manchester and, and Leeds yeah. and so on, it's kind of slowly changing, Well, that's going to be, it's going to take a generation for it to happen, I think it doesn't make the, field, the, the benefits of it, yeah, you know, maybe my daughter, she wants to work in publishing, might be able to go and do it sort of in the north, now, then I'm going to go to London, but yeah, that's kind of, it's, it's can work for us. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, sort of where Staffordshire is, won't you? But, um, yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, across the M62, down from Manchester, you're you, fine. You were talking yeah. earlier, you were saying how Hull is somewhere nobody goes through, while Stafford yeah. is somewhere everybody goes through. Exactly, yeah. It's on the M6. Which is probably as annoying as in people knock of it, isn't it? That sort of <laughs> you know, I've been through that. That's the sign. I've had a coffee at Stafford Services. Yeah, something. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, you're near Stoke. How unfortunate for you. Um, yeah, that, there's a there's a lot of a, a lot of that. Now, uh, one of the things that really interested us, um, looking at your, your biography, uh, your, your bio, um, right. is is the, your two writer in residences that you yeah. had. Uh, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. I mean, okay. So that's his dream job. That is. Well, yeah. it is. I mean, I'm not sure I pick a, a rugby league club to be my um to be my home hulkingston yeah, rovers what was that like though being a writer in it, residence for... it was a, it was a great experience it, and it came via caffeine nights because when when i created the character joe garrity i wanted to root him in in hullingston i wanted to make him a kind of like a a recognizable way that people outside of the city would know what what he was about and what the city was about and rugby league is one of those things that you talk about the house martins and, and philip larkin but you've also got rugby league fish and John Prescott, then they're kind of like the big ones <laughs> people know about. What a combination. Uh, yeah, 
So I thought, you know, right, I'm going to make him an ex rugby league player. Uh, and that's kind of, that was kind of his backstory. Um, even though I'm, more, I'm a football fan rather than a rugby fan, but, um, you know, rugby league is such a great, a great thing to use in a book because it divides a city. You know, you, you want all the other, you're, you're hoping to realize, yeah, yeah. you know, they, it's, there's that natural division which kind of people rub against. And I just kind of have an interesting kind of tension to play with. Um, and Kathleen Knight has just kind of made contact with Hulkington Rowers saying this book, the character in Joe Garrity is a former player. Could we maybe stock it in the in the club shop? Uh, and then I kind of got a phone call back saying, do you want to be the writer in residence? Like, yeah, what does, what does one of them do? Do, they, do I get to sit at a death call? They're just kind of leaning back and sort of being all literary and, you know, you'll feel sort of need <laughs> to do that. Um, but no, it was kind of, he asked me if I would contribute um, short stories to the match day program which was an interesting challenge because I was kind of aware that I can't write a novel that had any a short story that has any kind of swearing or violence or anything you know it can't be too gritty and I'm kind of thinking well how's yeah. that going to work and I kind of I, I worked with the idea and I really enjoyed kind of putting Joe Geraghty on the terraces of a match or maybe on the pitch in a match all kinds of things like that and so that was kind of the bulk of it was, was writing for the program but I also got involved with a community program at the club I went into some schools to help deliver some sort of like workshops on creative writing to children and uh, community days that the club put on. So, you know, it was a really kind of interesting process and a really kind of rewarding process in that sense. Um, and then the second residency was at the National Railway Museum in York, which yeah. came about. Um, it was originally, it was, it was a job that my friend Helen Cabri was doing, but at the time she was too ill to, to carry on to sort of commit to the process. So I was asked to step in and it was based around an exhibition of carriages that were kind of themed on the golden age of detective fiction. So that kind of Agatha Christie vibe. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Those beautiful carriages from the 20s and 30s. Uh, and I went in once a month across, I think it was about a nine-month period, and they're hiding a lot of these old typewriters, you know, them kind of like classic <laughs> Olivetti typewriters. and things. Yeah, and it was, uh, and when I sat there, uh, and I mean, they're just to kind of get people to do some writing. So we'd sit there with these typewriters and people would pass, I'd try and get them to come along and write a little bit. Uh, whatever the hands is writing on these typewriters because it's nobody uses typewriters did they anymore it was such a it was such a different thing for people to be able to kind of just feel how to do it on a, on a laptop um, so it was kind of just based on the idea of Agatha Christie and, and, and Golden Age Detectives but it kind of rapidly became clear that because I was going in to do it on a Monday which is what the uh, museum asked for the only people who come to the museum on a Monday were school parties so I yeah. used to spend most of my day, spend most of day just stopping kids from breaking their typewriters, really. <laughs> we've got an awful lot of creative writing out with them, but we just, every now and again, when there was, when there was adults in, we'd kind of talk about Agatha Christie and, and, and crime writing as a, as, a, as a thing with people. And it was just kind of like a nice way of adding a bit of value to, the, to those carriages in the, in the museum and trying to introduce people to the idea of being, maybe, you know, being creative, because we tend to stop it up when we leave school. You know, people stop writing stories, they stop, drawing whatever it might be yeah. it's just a chance to sit down for 10-15 minutes and do a little bit of doodling or just kind of have a feel of a typewriter again and just write about what they've been doing that day and I wasn't expecting them to kind of produce a, a three-act in-depth crime novel for me in 10 minutes but it was kind of uh, it was a really it would have been of, nice it would have yeah. been nice yeah I could have stolen their ideas couldn't I you know, the best <laughs> um, yeah, yeah it was a really nice kind of process to go along there and just try and engage with people about crime writing and use Agatha Christie as that that book to start it with so yeah, the, the, those kind of things I've done have been really kind of great opportunities. That, you know, you, you can't imagine having those when you kind of start writing a book. So, no. you know, it's just kind of, it's just these kind of like strange add-ons where you get the chance to do things like that, or maybe, you know, you get to go on stage interview and off, you're really at mind. You know, these kind of like things that spring off from being a writer have kind of 
it really kind of rewarding and, and rich, you know, and I, I get the chance. I went out to the, the Crime Festival writing in Iceland a few years back, you know, which was, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. I think the whole library's paid for me to go out there because it was part of the City of Fulci programme, but, you know, if you'd have told me when I started to write that, someone would pay me to go to Iceland for a few days and talk <laughs> about myself and enjoy Iceland and Reykjavik. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, you're gonna, these are amazing opportunities and experiences that, you know, I, mean, I wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah, it's um, not just sitting I, in your power writing yeah, a story. Yeah, yeah. So it'd be nice if I kind of get the chance to be a writer resident somewhere else, but I'm not kind of sure where I can go. So I'll have to think about that. Oh, I can kind yeah, of. Yeah, um, no, I'm just supposed to knock on. Our authors. We Humber Bridge, writer in residence. We should yeah. see if we can get some of our authors as writers in residence. Yeah. That's given us an idea for what we'll do in the back half of this programme. After the interview, we will now discuss where would be the most appropriate place to stick <laughs> yeah. our authors. And I think it, was, <laughs> it goes. I didn't of having to stand out again. That branded, doesn't it? Where because the idea of being writer resident is like uh, Hulkington Rose came about by Catherine Knights, who had to, you know, they were thinking, you know, differently to bigger publishers and like, how can we kind of help our authors stand out and how can we get our books in front of different audiences? And that's kind of what you know, people like you guys and, and Fahrenheit and so on have to do, isn't it? To kind of, yeah. kind of get that foothold in the industry. Giving, so. giving something back, isn't it? And then encouraging, yeah. like you say, encouraging people that. Even though they're grown up, they could still use their imagination. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, yes, it'd be really kind of rewarding, and you know, hopefully, on the back of it, you sell some books as well to people, which is kind <laughs> of difficult. So, yeah. yeah, that's always nice. <laughs> that's quite, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Not so easy to achieve. Um, what what plans have you got for, for for future projects? What have you got lined up? Are you working yeah, on something? At the moment, um, my latest novel is it's a bit of a step away from Joe Garrity. It's um, a, a young female podcaster. Um, she's she's based in Hull, but she's desperate to get out. You know, I've kind of sort of taken that antenna on his head. You know, instead of somebody being rooted in the city and part of the city, she wants no part of the city. She wants out of it. She wants something bigger and better. Um, so she's a podcaster, a true crime podcaster, uh, and she kind of stumbles upon the story that could potentially make her name. And it's a, a murder of an, an undercover detective that goes back to the raids in the late eighties um, in the fields of East Yorkshire, uh, and she kind of finds herself. In, in, in trapped in a nasty tale of blackmail and corruption and violence and all, all that good stuff that I like. Um, <laughs> so, so my agent's currently kind of sending that around publishers with the aim of hopefully getting me uh, something on, to get that, uh, like a deal to get that published. Um, so that's kind of on the, that's kind of on the boil hopefully and it's kind of left me in a little bit of a that strange limbo where you're not kind of sure what to really do next because I'd love to write another book with that character and, and, and carry on that series but if nobody wants a first book, then there's no point in the second book. So I'm kind of thinking, do I really commit to that process? Um, so I'm kind of currently working on a, a crime novel set in London in the 90s, 1995, with Britpop in the, at the centre of it in Camden. Oh, yeah. um, the, the murder of a kind of rising musician, Britpop star. That's going to link to all sorts of nasty, nasty crime stuff. So it's kind of like, I think, you know, we're going to, we're going to hit that period soon now where Britpop's going to be everywhere because it's going to be... A, the 30th anniversary, isn't it? Which is a, a terrifying yeah. number sitting right. 30th anniversary. That's absolutely terrifying. It's terrifying. Uh, it's still old. So when you go when you go into subject like Britpop, I mean obviously there's a lot of stuff around already, but yeah, uh, yeah. are you gonna have this murdered uh rising star of Britpop alongside you know, you're gonna have pulp and, and oasis oh, and all so that. Real. Are the real people gonna be in that or are you gonna have to use avatars for them? I don't think I'm gonna use real people, but they're gonna be there in the background. And they will add, I think they'll add some colour to the novel as well, you know, because the characters will talk about them or maybe hear them on the radio, that type of thing. So it will kind of 
wrote the novel in that, that period, I think. Right. But I don't want to actually use real people. I think that's probably a bit of a legal minefield, isn't it, in, in one sense. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, I'm really kind of interested and in, I've been doing a lot of reading around sort of this sense that, you know, we, we think of Britpop as a great big shiny kind of culturally great time, which in many respects it was, but there's also a lot of darkness there, only in the background to it. You know, there's a, there's a lot more things going on there. And I think that's kind of, as a crime writer, that's what you're looking for, isn't it? Where you can turn yeah. it into <laughs> a familiar tale and find something unfamiliar about it and different about it and twist it a little bit. So I want to write something that would be a bit darker than just a kind of a celebratory novel about Britpop. But um, yeah, it's kind of, I'm kind of just that's starting fantastic. that at the moment. So yeah, I'm really kind of excited to kind of get on with that. So we'll see. We'll see where he goes over the next few months, hopefully. That's intriguing. Oh, no, we, we, I, love, I love the thought <laughs> of that. In fact, both of those novels. Actually. It's interesting you saying so, the sort of the rise of interest in Britpop. My middle son, who is mm. 15, he keeps playing yeah. pulp in the 16. car. He's 16. 16, now. Yeah. sorry, 16. He's playing <laughs> pulp in the car, and I think, well, you weren't even born then. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, yeah, I guess that's just like, you know, like when I was Ben Beatles records, didn't you? You know, my mum's my mum was there watching them screaming outside, you know, trying to get into the concerts and stuff where everything just passes into sort of the past, doesn't it, in that sense? But, um, yeah, the Britpop's an interesting one because obviously I was kind of like late teens, 20-ish when that hit. So it's something I remember quite clearly, but also you kind of, there's that interesting thing in between memory and reality, isn't there? You know, where we kind of, you remember one thing, but maybe the reality of it is completely different. So that's that's something I want to try and tap into. So I'm just figuring out how I can get Hull into the story. Maybe my murdered starlet is going to be from Hull, possibly. Yeah, so I, can, I can still kind of get yeah, a bit pulled into the story, but, uh, but it's an <laughs> interesting challenge to write about. I've always written about Hull, so writing about London, which I, you know, I kind of know the city in the sense that most people know the city. You know, I kind of go there, whatever it might be, a few times a year, and you know, I kind of know parts of it. But I'm kind of wondering, do I know it well enough to write about? And that's becoming a challenge to me as well in a different way to writing about Hull, where I kind of do know the city, and I know the geography, and I know what it feels like, I know what it sounds like. Uh, London's a different beast, so it's kind of trying to capture that is is going to be quite a challenge as well. I and think. I think I think one of the challenges for anyone trying to retrofit, as, as you will be, you know, um, yeah. with London, is that it's changed so dramatically yeah. and keeps yeah. changing dramatically, especially that yeah. area around Camden, where you yeah. know they, uh, there's been an incredible. Well, I suppose some of the venues that used yeah. to be in um, sidings at uh, King's Cross behind King's Cross. Were, were you know famous for for, for ho- holding a lot of these sort of early gigs and then you know yeah. um that's all been gentrified to an extraordinary yeah. level and yeah. you know the yeah. most amazing redevelopment google base there and all that stuff so that's difficult and then camden itself is a bit like carnaby street tried to do which was trying yeah. to cling on to its heyday and the market and all that sort of thing but realistically that that vibe the, the amazing atmosphere there was and I did go to Camden a couple of times at that period, and it was it, it you know it now feels like a parody mm. of it. Like of, of, Street is like that. Oh, yeah. Carnaby Street. Yeah. Well, Carnaby yeah. Street they've just given up. I mean, it's just Foot Asylum and 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 all those yeah. sort of shops rather than anything that's counterculture at all. There's nothing left no. of what, yeah. what was there. It's like Matthew Street in Liverpool, into it. I think that's the same, isn't it, with a cabin and everything. It's now, a, yeah. it's not you know it, it purports to be kind of like the home of the Beatles, but it's just full of kind of swanky bars and. Uh, Stag parties and Hindus, isn't it? You know, it's yeah. what it was, nothing like it was. But yeah, for this novel, I've, I think I've struck gold because I managed to find, uh, via sort of search on, online, uh, an edition of The Melody Maker, which was published oh, really? June 1995. It's got a map of Camden in it. Oh, brilliant. Uh, so it's got all the venues on it. It's got all the, it's, it's, it's like a recommendation. It says, you know, you can go and eat at this takeaway here. This is where you probably go and bump into 
Liam Gallagher or something, this bar opens from this hour. It's just like it's a it's a map of Camden in 1995, and it's just amazing. It's got all the record shops on it, the bars, the venues, the oh, greasy cafes. You know, it's just I've just it's just it's an absolute gift. Yeah, it cost me something like ten quid on eBay, but it was, it's going to be worth every penny. It's worth it. Worth every penny. If only we had a time machine, eh? Then you could well, just that go be, back. Yes. That would be useful, wouldn't it, for us writers? Yeah, yeah. If you yeah. could kind of do a back and experience these times, then that would be. <laughs> Except you yeah. have to be full of these crime writers making notes. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. it's another crime writer. <laughs> you know, at the, at the beer keller in Munich. You know. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's oh, that, that's my dream. I look, I look, I keep saying to other writers, my friend Kathy Unsworth, I, I want to write you a kind of a, a crime novel set in Hamburg in the early sixties with the kind of Beatles in the background to it. You know, I think there's such a rich seam of stuff mm. that can be there. You know, but again, a bit like oh, it's a port city, isn't it? And I think yes, exactly. Horses is a brilliant for crime novels because you know oh, things yeah. you know it's such a such an opportunity like within the crooked beat the third Joe Garrity novel that revolves around smuggled cigarettes um you know that's you know such an issue in a city like all oh, that smuggled cigarettes mm. so many come in and out when you know, and they get sold in in shops you know and they're, they're, obviously these are dangerous items because they're not properly I don't know how they make cigarettes but they're kind of they're with all sorts of nasty stuff even even beyond normal nasty stuff so uh, yeah, yeah, Port City is a fascinating, I think, for, for, for me as a crime writer. But in Hamburg is one that I would love to uh, to tackle if I can just find the right story. If I just find the right idea. <laughs> you know, yeah. you've, got, you've got some good projects already, yeah. so you know, that'll come. <laughs> You're very busy by the time. Now then, now then, I mean, you know, that's challenging enough. Oh, but gosh, it, it is time for the ultimate challenge in in British yeah. podcast, which is Rebecca's random question. Okay, it's a twofold question. Oh, no. The first part of the question is, what would you like your last sentence to be? What would I like my last sentence to be? Uh, oh, that is a good one, isn't it? You know, it is... I suppose, uh, you know, you want, I, want, I suppose if I want to die, it must be with my family around me, wasn't it? So, um, oh, God, this is terrible, isn't it? I'd like that. Maybe it's something like, oh, I, I, I did try. I, your, your daddy didn't spend all day sat on Twitter. He did try. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do spend far too much time on Twitter. My daughter does think I'm a professional tweeter, I think. For one <laughs> he sits on Twitter. So I maybe say something like, I did try. Um, but I think in terms of writing, it keeps cropping up. And I saw about this about other writers as well, that they say about publishers don't want quiet novels. Um, you know, the crime novels, the sense that crime novels have to be great big, noisy beast where you've got serial killers stalking the streets everywhere and, and I don't want to do that so no uh, maybe my last words will be he didn't write he didn't want to write quiet novels or something you know uh, it's, it's kind of, it's, it seems to be like people saying it as an insult but I think you know crime novels that are perceived to be quiet are the better crime novels to me they're the more interesting ones where you're really tapping into sort of interesting things that are happening not just these kind of fantastical serial killers kind of organizing victims into like religious spreads with pentacles and all that type of thing around them so yeah you know maybe i'll maybe i'll say something about writing quiet crime novels as i go and i'm quite pleased with that that's but, interesting isn't it because we are big believers in negative space in writing yeah. aren't we oh yeah like it's what you don't say is more powerful than what you do yeah say, absolutely yeah absolutely and i think that's the way anyway, that to do that so but, yeah maybe say something about that mutter something about that on my deathbed or maybe just you know, <laughs> i'm now going to leave you with the ultimate negative space uh. Yeah. <laughs> well, the second, second part of the question is what do you think your actual last sentence is going to be so you have this idea of what you will say but you know you're yeah, dying well, you haven't got well, time well, to think about the best sentence so what, what oh, do you think you're yeah. going to say 
It's obviously like to, again, well, if, if it was now and my daughter was still coming for 11, I'd say, turn the bloody light off. It's too expensive. Turn the light off or be quiet. Or, uh, you know, or maybe put the, put the kettle on, please. If I think I maybe, <laughs> if I've still got maybe 10 minutes in, then maybe I'll have one last cup of coffee before I go. Yeah, I like that. I'm just, I'm just getting a few deathbed quotes up now because I didn't know this was coming. <laughs> but I mean, you know, famously, King George V, um, his final words were bugger Bogner. Because <laughs> he'd, he'd been to Bogner yeah. Regis for the waters and uh, the healing yeah. property. Yeah, so saying something yeah. mysterious is quite a nice thing, isn't it? Then you know, so the people who left would be thinking, you know, what did he mean? What did he mean by bugger Bogner or something? Yeah, we did This is a good one from Humphrey Bogart. I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lesson in light for everybody. Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah, yeah, seems, yeah. whiskey seems to be a strong, strong theme here. Uh, who's this? James Joyce. Oh, James Joyce. The light okay. music of whiskey falling into glasses made an agreeable interlude. I mean, was he really that coherent and, and, and poetic on his deathbed? Yeah, well, you apparently. You wonder. You wonder. <laughs> well, he would, he, he would say something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had it prepared. It's like... Yeah. Um, it's like football commentator. I mean, I, I've worked with a lot of them and I've done it quite a bit myself. And uh, football commentators, the good ones, create the words, you know, spontaneously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know when they've written the lines. You can hear it. A lot of the yeah, modern commentators yeah, will have yeah. for whatever scenario. Um, I mean, you know, I think of, so my team's Man United. And so uh, when we won the Champions League in 1999, uh, you hear Clive Tilsley giving it large, but it's so rehearsed. You know, United yeah, have reached yeah. the promised land and all that stuff. I oh, mean, there's well, that. I you know, it was that. so slick. It was there was yeah. no way that he hadn't got it down. Yeah. You know, like Kenneth Walsenholm, you could tell he was exhausted by the end of extra time um, at the World Cup final. You know, and he just he's reacting to what's going on on the pitch. You know, he didn't write the line. Some people are on the pitch, they think it's all over. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it is now. It's four. Um, you know, that's that's an immortal line, but you can hear the pauses, the negative space as he's trying to get the language yeah. together to to yeah. say it. And yeah. uh, um, and I think it's really, really. I mean, they they are the great people. So I hope I would come up with some sort of witty aphorism or something <laughs> that I can leave the world. But I'll probably say something really prosaic. Like, get the cat off the bed. Or... Yeah, it probably would be get the cat off the bed. Get the you're going to go first. Mine will be, I haven't done this before. <laughs> That's true. That's one of your stock phrases. Yeah. I'm going to spend all day thinking about this now instead of doing something like, it's only some writing, I'm just out there thinking, what will my final word be? I'm going to have to kind of rehearse something up here. Something. Yeah. yeah. It's a good question. I like that one. It is a good question. It's a philosophical question to, uh, to tackle. <laughs> roll around yeah so oh, oh, or it might be something like oh bugger i forgot to put the bins out something you like never that put the bins out. <laughs> I put the bins out. oh you did actually you did once recently put the bins out anyway we don't want to get into a bin no no, no well look um i think you've you've done uh well i shouldn't say in this egalitarian world i can't say a manful job of answering the two-part <laughs> rebecca random question but you know fantastic uh it's really been a blast we've really enjoyed this interview nick and um thank you so much for your time 
Where can people find you? I'm sounding like Joanna Penn now. You are sounding like Joanna. Where can people find you online if they want to know more about Nick Quantrill? (laughs) They can find me on my website, which is nickquantrill.co.uk, or um, I'm always on Twitter, as my daughter would let you know. So (laughs) that's always the best bit, at Nick Quantrill. So yeah, I'm always around. Yeah, that'd be great. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. Catch you soon. He did deal with your random question pretty well. He did. And it's funny because I, I had the question in my head and as we were talking to him, I was thinking, yeah, he, he'll be able to handle this one because this, this isn't an easy question. I thought, yeah, he can do it. And he did. He did. He did really well. He did really well. That was, that was a, uh, you know, as they say, that was a low blow in wrestling terms. <laughs> um, or well, boxing. people should know to expect the unexpected with my random questions. Well, they do. They do. It's become, in, in, you know, it's world, it's world renowned now and it's it's known known <laughs> throughout wish. no but it's known throughout the literary world everyone's looking forward to getting the, a rebecca random question um in fact we probably will start getting people turning us down just because they can't face that i mean they, they want to talk about their books and their career but who knows well that was nick and next week we have what we've been promising you for some time now andrew child andrew child from crime fest in bristol from uh, two or three weeks ago uh we had a wonderful conversation with andrew andrew uh, you'll remember is the brother of lee child and he has taken over the reacher series so no small task uh frankly a, a daunting one to take over such a popular and successful series as the reacher books and we talk about of course how that works how much lee child is involved in the creation of a new book but it's Andrew really doing all the hard yeah, work. Yeah, it's a fascinating conversation we have. Oh, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And, um, you know, we, we really struck up a really strong rapport with him and it was just lovely. And he has a Hobeck mug, so we hope he's going to be drinking coffee. And we're hoping to send him some Hobeck blend because he's obsessed with coffee. As yeah, find we out did next promise week. that, didn't we? So we will do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, I think we should just mention that we've got lots and lots of, uh, we've had lots of books out recently. We had Jonathan Peace on the program last week and Dirty Little Secret has done really well from launch yeah it's had some fantastic reviews amazing reviews yeah absolutely as indeed did yes i killed her by harry fisher yeah again i mean we, we've been blessed and, recently with uh, lots of love. absolutely and bloodlines by lynn laversha uh, again we, yeah the reviewers love <laughs> i i love the fact that when i uh, put out an email and i say you know we've got another blog tour coming up i love the fact that they, they still say it. yes they yeah still they do yes well they know they're going to get something good I mean, I don't want to sort of go too nuts about it, but, you know, it's it's terrific. So we've got lots and lots of wonderful projects coming up, and uh, we've been working on all sorts of aspects of the business this week. You've actually refreshed our website. I have, um, yeah. I mean... So it is really worth going to www.hobeck.net <laughs> to see what you've done. Yes. What have you done to our website? I'd like to know what people think as well. So any feedback, please do throw it at us. We're going to do a bigger refresh, but basically we have – Change the emphasis a little to put the books front and centre. Yeah. Uh, and you've done a great job. So, you know, there's lots of interactivity there now about those books. And, um, yeah, it's terrific. We're going to take it to another level over the next two or three months. Yeah, that's gonna, the plan. We'll have a... You know, proper work through and just figure out what to, what to do to, um, you know, make it a destination. And actually, this week I added the app... <laughs> for the website builder that we use and um i now know if you go and visit our website i'll know you've been there because it it tells it tells me every time someone goes to visits and it tells me what whereabouts in the world they've done it from does it tell you that who they are though not necessarily no it won't give me the name email 
No, it'll just be called visitor. Da, da, da. Oh. Yeah, and sometimes you get an email. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, sometimes they, ca- you know, we're capturing emails. That's so we have been having a lot of new subscribers. You're running a campaign to to encourage people yeah, to, that's, to that's join the Hobeck family. Too. Which is great, and so they'll be getting your weekly newsletter later tonight <laughs> after we've recorded this podcast, which is terrific. So, but yeah, I mean, I'm now getting pinged every time someone goes, and you know, I've seen it from all around the world. People have been coming to our website. And you see, that amazes blows, me. Blows my mind, really. Yeah. But yeah, because we're not. So there's a there's a Facebook ad at the moment targeted UK people to come and check out our website. So I don't know where these other people are coming from or how mm. they're finding us. No, indeed, indeed. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, you know, this week it's well, last week was was a very difficult week for me in in many regards. I went to a funeral on Wednesday in London and it was the mother of a dear friend of mine and indeed, you know, she was also a dear friend as well. And it was also a family reunion of sorts in the sense that I uh saw my uh, ex-father and mother-in-law, which then you know, we hadn't really been in terrific contact for as you can imagine a few years now uh which was very successful actually mm-hmm. you know an element of guardedness but nonetheless you know i think that when you get to this point in life um from my side and i think from theirs you know you know we still have the grandkids in common absolutely and you always will so yeah um and we have more in common than we don't so that was that was very a moving moment for me it's been a big week really for that um Yesterday was a bit of a, 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 a trouble, um, yeah, as we mentioned. Flooding because, toilet. Yeah, but just before that, I got an email reminder that I had tickets for, we had tickets for a performance of Jerusalem with Mark Rylance, which is a multi-award winning play, uh, which has been relaunched again in London. And uh, I know when I got them, I was really excited we got them, and I completely forgotten. So much has happened in the last few months that I can, you know, as you do, now you have to order these things a year ahead almost. Um I'd completely forgotten we had them. And so I just got back from Park Run. Yeah, it was half past. And the toilet was flooding. It's, it's, yeah, it's, the toilet's <laughs> flooding. It's flooding into the kitchen. It's half past 10 in the morning, and the performance is at one thirty at the Apollo Theatre in London. So just no way we can get from Staffordshire down there in time and reorganise everything. And it's just an opportunity lost. But I think it just sums up. I think, you know, you have to keep your diary a bit better. But nonetheless, it's always this thing about having to buy tickets so far in advance. You yeah. forget these things. Well, and also, I mean, you know, we both were aware of it at the time. We both forgot completely. Yeah, we did. We did. It was supposed to be a birthday thing, a um, gift to myself, I suppose. Um, and uh, it is my birthday tomorrow. It is. And you may get a present or two. I'm really excited. Are you? I'm so excited. Yeah, well, you you love you buy the most esoteric and wonderful presents, just you know, that are unforgettable. Really, there is, there is one present I can guarantee you have never been given before, and you've never given to anyone before either. I've never given it to anyone before. It took a bit of searching to find on on the internet. Is it is it Ebola or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> it is not Ebola. No. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, look, I mean, the week ahead, um, we're going off to Exeter again next weekend, uh, this time to pay tribute to, uh, as I mentioned on the programme a few weeks ago, the passing of of a mentor of mine. So a few of us from my generation of university radio people are gathering together and uh, we're going to record our own tribute to him to contribute towards a wider tribute to him if you know what i mean from the station itself but because we couldn't go over the weekend of that because we're at another uh, literary festival we decided to go down independently yeah and do something 
and um, so there'll be, th- you know, you're coming with us. I'm coming too. But there's the three of us. Uh, uh, someone, many of you who follow Formula One will know this guy, Ted Kravitz, who's the pit lane reporter for the World Feed for Formula One, so known around the world, and another colleague who was the former defence producer at the BBC. So we're, we're going to go down. You know, we owe us so much to this guy, to Frog. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, any opportunity to go back to Exeter, frankly. But on this occasion, um, we're going to try and do something very special. Yeah, um, so, that'll be... so it's lovely. Yeah, absolutely. So that'll be... Uh... I can proofread a book on the motorway too. <laughs> you can, you can. <laughs> well, I'm proofreading at the minute. I'm uh, I'm working on two projects, but at the moment my big, big priorities, I've got a deadline to uh, complete Cousin Ash. Yes, which I've is given the, you a deadline. The next book from S.E. Shepherd. And Sue, don't worry, I'm a third of the way through and did that in one day. That's the most I've read in one day, <laughs> probably forever. Uh, I loved it. So, you know, you can rest assured it's a great book. And I've just started I'm Not There. I'm Not There by Rob Gittins. Yeah. And uh, I've I read the sort of the full thing when it was submitted to us. Yeah. And uh, it's you, you were so excited this morning. <laughs> when you, I came down um, from a shower and you were going, oh, I love this book, which is always a good sign. <laughs> I hope sign. he's listening. <laughs> I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is. But I think he's been busy. I, I don't know if he had any involvement. In um, you won't have seen this because we've watched none of the Jubilee stuff at all, and that's quite unlike me because I'm quite a I've been a royalist for, for for you know forever, but I haven't bothered with any of this because just somehow the broadcasters have just ruined. Well, you also live with me, and I I yeah, yeah, called yeah, the Queen Liz as she came round. So yeah, yeah, you're not into that, and and I showed you excitedly the Paddington marmalade sandwich sketch. Or at least I talked to you about it, and you're going, "Oh yeah, whatever." Yeah, but I've got a secret to tell you. What's that? When you went to the toilet, I you watched, watched it. You it watched... is cute. It is really cute. Of course, it is. You cynic, honestly. Um, what was I saying? Um, I've lost my track now. Uh, as to what, what Giddens is doing this weekend? But yeah, no. Was... Eastenders. Eastenders did a special where Camilla and Charles did a walkabout in Albert Square. Oh really? I don't know whether he had anything. Well, I actually Danny know Dyer what he's been around. doing. Oh, really? What's that? He had his grandkids over. Right, okay. <laughs> so you... Is that going to be reflected in EastEnders? <laughs> no, he, just, he, he replied to an email and he's saying, oh, I'm a bit busy because I'm, I'm on grandkid duty. So. Right, right. Well, look, um, we, have, uh, we have many arms <laughs> to <laughs> our <octopus>. business. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so we are refreshing a website. But, of course, you can go there to find out more about our books, our authors, the office we've got, uh, it's National Crime Reading Month. We ought to have talked about that because we're all over it, frankly. We're going to be doing some discounts and stuff later in the month um, to reflect National Crime Reading Month. We just haven't decided which ones are going to get discounted, but we'll, <laughs> we'll get on to that. And, of course, we have our wonderful audiobooks. Enter a world of great stories from Hobeck Audiobooks from authors including Mark Whiteman, Linda Huber, Malcolm Hollingdrake, Essie Shepherd, Ollie Jarvis, A.B. Morgan, and Robert Dawes. Tamara Sullivan once more gave up on the book in her hand. She leaned back in her seat, closed her eyes, and prayed that the two-and-a-half-hour flight would bring less turbulence than the last few months of her life had managed to generate. Lottie's hands fought their way back to his hair. With a yank, she almost removed an entire clump. Stop the bloody car now! DC Bradshaw. That's an order.
I squeeze the steering wheel to stop my hands shaking and lean forward to give myself the clearest view of the road. Last week I was looking forward to a holiday. Last week I had a future. She dreaded the answer to her next question. But why me? You must be aware that I haven't accepted any work for three years. You'd never request someone who'd been out of the game for so long. Unless... She stopped. Unless I had some special skill. Daria leaned over to kiss Evie's damp little forehead, then jerked back in horror as a long, deep horn blared and headlights from an approaching lorry swept through the cab. A single, sickening scream left Daria's soul as Evie's rucksack scratched across her face. Betancourt waved a languid hand. Later, he pulled away the cover. Working like a camera, his detective's eyes took in everything. The woman was young, probably early 20s. Prissy. Hobeck Audiobooks. We know the power of great storytelling. Yeah. I think it's fair to say we do. I hope we do. I think so. I think so. Well, it's been uh, a, a really um, big week this week, and next week will be just as big. It always is. Is there anything special happening next week? Well, yeah. Um... We were talking about it only ten minutes ago. Oh, your birthday. Oh, sorry if it's so droll. <laughs> anyway, look, it's, it's not a biggie. It's only 52. Yeah, but I've got you some presents. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm so, you are so sweet. Thank you so much. Um, and, uh, yeah, we look forward to that. But then after that, plenty of work to do. Yes. Oh, hello. There's a dog just run across the patio. What sort of dog? Little black thing. Little spaniel. Cute. Yeah, yeah. Been called back now. <laughs> probably saw Aki and decided, right, that's it. That cat's going to get it. She's probably upstairs somewhere. She's asleep. I can guarantee yeah, it. Absolutely. She will be. She will be. She'll be alive when we're asleep, <laughs> as usual. Anyway, look, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, don't forget, please, to check out our website, www.hobeck.net and uh, have a look at uh, Rebecca's hard work refreshing <laughs> elements of the website and uh we've got this uh, you know plenty to do this week we do play some more tennis i dare say if uh, it stopped raining now we're, we're supposed to be playing in about an hour from now aren't we or no a bit later than that actually <laughs> oh no you're right it's about an hour yeah because the weather it's absolutely foul but you know bbc weather said it would, would dry up by then oh well, well you trust the bbc well you know, it's it's then or never because you know Sunday roast doesn't cook itself, and you can't trust these I've got boys to, go to shopping do it. For yeah, well, we'll go early, do that, and then we can get on the court, and so that'll be fun. But anyway, uh, it's been a real pleasure to to speak to you all, and uh, have a wonderful and you know what I'm about to say, don't you? Creative week. Creative week. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. 
Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Thank you.